All right, that's the foghorn. It must mean it's time for the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, we talk with two noted naval experts and get their take on the latest Navy budget battles and find out if the Navy is actually strategically bankrupt. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. On July 6th, HMS Queen Elizabeth and ships of her carrier strike group 21 passed southbound through the Suez Canal and entered the Red Sea en route to the Indian Ocean, becoming the first British full-sized aircraft carrier to operate in those waters since the late HMS Ark Royal of the 1970s. The movement marks a significant return for the British Royal Navy, which sacrificed much of its size, including most of its frigate force, to build and equip its new carriers and protect them at sea. At the same time Queen Queen Liz was at Suez, her younger sister ship, Prince of Wales, called at Gibraltar at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea, a notable accomplishment. Speaking of the Suez Canal, the infamous container ship Ever Given was finally released from custody on July 7th and allowed to exit the canal's northern end. The ship grounded in the canal on March 23rd and completely blocked the waterway that cuts between the Mediterranean and Red Seas. The ship was finally refloated on March 29th, but was held by Egyptian authorities to settle compensation claims. While shipping and maritime authorities have always known of the vulnerabilities of major choke points like the Suez Canal, the blockage and worldwide attention it garnered raised the awareness of such key maritime highways to world trade. On July 1st, the carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower passed northbound through the canal and exited the Mediterranean on July 7th, headed for her home port of Norfolk. Earlier in the deployment, the Ever Given's grounding held up Ike's transit from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. The Eisenhower and Queen Elizabeth transits illustrate the importance of Suez in easily moving naval forces from one operational theater to another. Exercise Seabreeze 2021 continued in the Black Sea, sponsored by the U.S. and Ukraine, and with a number of NATO forces taking part, all closely watched by Russia. Notably, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the U.S. destroyer Ross on July 4th at Odessa to show his support. Out in the Pacific, ships from Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. arrived at Sydney, Australia, ahead of Pacific Vanguard exercises. Closer to home, on July 7th, a small fire broke out in a machinery space aboard the cruiser Gettysburg at BAE Systems Shipyard in Norfolk. According to a Navy spokesman, the fire, attributed to sparks from hot work, was quickly extinguished after it was found. Four sailors were treated and released at a local hospital. The Navy said there was no damage to the ship, which is undergoing a modernization overhaul and is not one of the seven cruisers the Navy is seeking to decommission in fiscal 2022. Finally, Carlos del Toro, the Biden administration's nominee to become the next Secretary of the Navy, will go before the Senate Armed Services Committee on Tuesday, July 13th for a confirmation hearing. At this juncture, there seems to be no significant obstacles to his confirmation by the full Senate to become the 78th Secretary of the Navy. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. Moving to our interview part of the podcast, uh, joining us are Navalist Brian McGrath of the Ferry Bridge Group and Thomas Shugart, a senior fellow with the Defense Program at the Center for New American Security and founder of Archer Strategic Consulting. 
Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Yeah. I want to start off with the first question um, about the budget. Um, we've talked a lot on this show, and, and Vago uh, has talked about it on the Defense and Aerospace Report. In fact, Brian, you and Chris joined Vago to kind of go through the budget as it was being rolled out. But now having the benefit of um, a deeper dive as well as testimony from uh, the service chiefs and uh, the acting secretary, Brian, what are your thoughts on this budget? Um, what do you like? Uh, what did you wish um, was in the budget that didn't make it? Uh, my thoughts on the budget are that it is insufficient. It is uh, a reasonable attempt to lay markers down against uh, short uh, assessments of short-term threat, investments in medium-term systems that are that need some additional money to come to fruition, and some long-term research and development in no small measure because it tries to be a little bit of everything. It accomplishes little of anything. You can see the battle lines being drawn uh, from the questioning uh, on Capitol Hill. There are some who have bought wholly into Admiral Davidson's Davidson window uh, prediction or strategic vision that the Chinese may be ready to make, may be readying to make a move on Taiwan in the next few years, which drives people to want to make short term, uh, to shore up readiness and uh, operations in the short term. That viewpoint is being uh, very ably represented by Representative Luria uh, down in the Tidewater region. Um, but that's not the Biden administration's uh, bag right now. The Biden administration's bag is more of a medium and long-term look. For the listeners, Chris Daugherty at the uh, Center for New American Security uh, did a piece on War on the Rocks last week, I think, that I th maybe you guys can include in your show notes or whatever, but that sort of lays out the Navy's problem in a really uh, articulate way. It has a near-term problem, a mid-term problem, and a long-term problem. The Trump administration was concerned with the near and midterm. The Biden administration seems concerned with the mid and long term. And there is an increasingly uh, important group of people in Congress who are really fixated on the short term. Something's got to give. Something's got to give. As long as the as long as Navy leaders are being asked to uh, prioritize among those three broad visions, um, they're going to come forward with a general approach to things that's not going to make anybody really happy. And uh, Congress is going to be dissatisfied. I'm going to be dissatisfied. And my guess is many of your listeners will be dissatisfied. Tom, your uh, same question to you, um, you know, your, your thoughts on, on the budget and maybe some of the commentary as it was rolled out. But also, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I mean, you've written quite a bit. You've testified on um, really the China angle of, uh, uh, of naval warfare. If you could also talk about this budget in the context, beyond what Brian already mentioned, in the context of China, um, you know, where does it fall short? Where does it meet the mark? Thanks, Chris. And I'm, lar I'm largely uh, in agreement with, uh, actually wholly in agreement here with, uh, with Brian on, on his assessment of the budget and the challenges there. When it comes to the with respect to the China challenge, you know, I, I've said in my testimony that I, I think the period of greatest peril is probably the or the late 2020s, uh, where you've got the our the U.S. Navy's SSN trough, where the last of the kind of Cold War era large numbers of uh, LA class submarines are decommissioned, 
um, before uh, you know Virginia productions really ramped up. Uh, you've got a significant number of our late Cold War surface ships with a lot of VLS tubes that are that are being retired and being replaced to some extent with LCSs uh, that have no VLS tubes. Uh, and in a number of different ways, we're, we're, we kind of have a, a nadir of, of capability just before um, the capability improvements that we, that are in development after we've kind of swung our attention to facing the China there before they really come to fruition at scale in the late 2020s. At the same time, in the, in the meantime, China's been, um, you know, continues to just really dramatically improve its capabilities and the, and the scale of its, of its forces and especially its naval forces. And I don't see any reason for that to stop. So, so I think that is kind of the scariest point for us is that uh, kind of 25, 2025 to 2028 period. With respect to the budget, um, there's not a lot I think you can do about that with SCN and, and that kind of timeline. Uh, I think, uh, but, but at the same time, I think it's a, a far enough off that O&M in the, this year, the next year, probably isn't going to affect that as well. I think probably, uh, you know, just o, OPN for, upgrades uh, and weapons procurement is what we need to be really uh, uh, making significant investments on. Now, the, the budget, you know, anybody who's defending the budget will tell you, look at all the invest- the, the uh, weapons investments we're making, and they can point at a num- number of different investments in things like Tomahawk anti-ship, the new anti-ship version, LRASM, et cetera. But if you look at the numbers, they're just not that great with respect to the scale of what I think we're going to need. I mean, when I look at the, the procurement numbers, uh, in the budget for 22 for weapons, that looks like to me like about a day's worth of munitions, uh, if, if what I could imagine the conflict in the Western Pacific could look like. So, I mean, but ultimately what it has boiled down to is uh, along the lines of what Brian said, it's just not enough. I mean, I do not support the president's budget. You know, now that I'm not in uniform anymore, I can say that out loud, not that anybody ever asked me, but it's just not enough. I mean, when you see the scale of the challenge that we're facing and for the first response to that, to be to buy fewer ships um, and to to very make very few changes in other areas, uh, this doesn't make sense to me. And if the answer, for example, also is unmanned, that we're going to make we're somehow going to make magic happen uh, by doing things in a, in a different, more efficient way that that closes the gap, the investment isn't there either. I mean, I I went and crunched the numbers because I was curious. You know how how much unmanned investment are we making? And so I I picked it and found everything I could. That's unmanned, and I came up with about two percent of of our of the FY22 budget's procurement and RDT&E was unmanned systems. So again, you may see an unmanned system on the cover of these things. We, we may talk about it a lot, but there's not a lot of investment there either. Brian, you mentioned uh, Chris Dougherty's uh, "War on the Rocks" piece um, gradually and then suddenly explaining the Navy's strategic bankruptcy. You do work for the Navy. You've got a lot of friends uh, and uh, acquaintances that are still uh, in uniform. Is the Navy suffering from a strategic bank, uh, bankruptcy? Um, is, this a, is this a Navy problem? Is this a problem where the, the Navy and the new Biden team are not on the same page? Is it that everybody gets it, but we just don't have enough money? Where do the problems lie in, in your mind? I don't think the Navy suffers from strategic bankruptcy. I think the Navy suffers from strategic plenty. And that is, if you look at, um, if you look at a force structure that is appropriate for the short term or a budget, a budgetary focus appropriate for the short term. And then the same thing for the medium and the long term, as Chris Dougherty uh, describes them in his article, you will find at the heart of each of those 
budgetary approaches, a coherent strategy, or at least a proto-strategy of what it is that drives you to decide that that would be the most important place to place your money. Um, there are people within the Navy and within the government and within the, uh, within the, uh, the Congress who are beholden to each of those things. And the, the problem again, and this is, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be CNO's defender here, but um, the CNO has to plan for all of those. Uh, and, and, and naval strategy, maritime strategy has to do that. Rep again, Representative Luria has, ha and Doherty both tend to come down on the sense that there, are, there isn't a strategy. And maybe because there are competing ideas of what it should be, they just null each other out and you're left without a strategy. I think the Navy does a lot of good strategic thinking. I think the Navy has a reasonable sense of where it needs to go. I think the biggest problem the Navy has is that it has insufficient resources. It has insufficient resources to cover the things it's being asked to do today and insufficient resources to respond to the challenge of tomorrow. It has for the past 20 years, pardon my French, pissed away a lot of money on bad ideas and bad execution. And there are a lot of people who are gun shy about giving it more. We have to get over that. We just have to get over that. We have to be an adult, great power and recognize that you got to dance with the girl that brung you and the, that girl is our Navy. And we have to put money into that Navy, into the good ideas, into the, into the things that we know we can do well and the things we think we can do well and, and move those things along. I'm not a big fan of charges that there's strategic bankruptcy. I understand why they get made. Um, my problem is that there's just too many bases to cover for the resources we're given. For both of you uh, folks, this is Chris Cavus. The Navy may have strategies, but the Navy definitely has a problem in articulating those strategies and articulating them in a coherent form that people can understand without hurting their brains too much. Um, you know, there's just too many parts to it and they're too vague and they're not very declarative. Declarative in the sense of what they exactly are. Um, one example of, of something that maybe they are doing, but they're not articulating well. There's, there's been a recent emphasis on submarine capability. Uh, the, the, the theme in the budget is that, that I mean, uh, submarines are inviolate. So, submarines in this budget have total priority over everything else. If you're a sub, you're doing pretty well. If you're not a sub, get in line. That's both the Columbia class and for the uh, Virginia class attack submarines. But, and, and lately they've been, the Navy has been there's been a clear campaign to make the silent service much more visible, a lot more imagery of submarines on deployment, doing things uh, at home and refit, whatever. It's just, uh, it's a remarkable change for a service that doesn't like to call attention to itself, inherently doesn't like it. Um, if you talk about deterrence, nothing really beats the power of a submarine. There, but so in, in some ways you could say this added emphasis on subs both in the budget and both in the PR area is to emphasize that the US Navy has this capability, this undersea capability that is that is unmatched. There's you could say, well, the message of the Chinese is if you want to build a lot of targets, feel free. We have a lot of submarines, they have torpedoes and um, 
It's a target-rich environment. But we don't articulate that. We sort of leave that open to interpretation. Either of you, um, and, and uh, Tom Sugar, you are a submariner. Um, is this something that, do you feel that there should be, should or could be more emphasis on the combat capability that we do possess, the, the, the superior combat capability that we do possess, rather than the endless fretting about the Chinese are building ships at a rate that we can't possibly hope to match? Is that an opportunity? In terms of the opportunity and, and, and the priority that we have in the budget on undersea warfare, I mean, I think for the most part, what you're seeing is the actualization of the, large, the nation's larger strategy as, as described in the NDS, uh, where, you know, where the prioritizations are, which are, one, is modernizing the nuclear force, which that's, that's Columbia, and that's a, that's a have-to-do kind of thing. I mean, that's not, you know, re replacing Ohio, uh, the Ohio class, and being able to do that mission is not something that the Navy even gets any choice about whether it's going to do. It's a national-level requirement, uh, and, it, and the requirements or what it takes to do that is also laid out at the national level from, you know, strategic command. So that's, Really, it's the, the Navy's only choice is how are we going to do this? And the, the, the current plan for Columbia is what they've come up, what the Navy came up with as the most efficient um, uh, way to do it. And I can tell you that having been the requirements officer for that program, that people might not think this, but cost is absolutely something that is, is really minutely tracked and really pushed back hard against whenever there are any, any increases, despite what folks outside might think. With respect to the rest of the undersea portfolio, and, and yeah, you saw two, two SSNs in the plan this year. I mean, last year, the Navy, the FY21 budget, Navy tried to have just buy one, and then you had a second get added in by Congress. So perhaps they were just anticipating doing what Congress was probably going to do anyways. In terms of areas that you could further push things and, uh, and really drive um, significant changes in the curve, for undersea warfare, I think probably is going to be in unmanned systems because it's just so difficult to. Do. I mean, the, the the nuclear submarine shipbuilding base uh, is pretty maxed out for future years uh, with Columbia and and two Virginias a year. So that there's not a. Whole, I mean, you could build more, but it would take a you know tremendous expense to de generate the additional industrial infrastructure that it would take to do that. Now, could we do that? Of course we could. It's just a matter of how much money do you want to spend on it. So, but, uh, you know, before we got to that point, though, I think we could invest a lot more in, um, in you know, EUVs, unmanned, unmanned technologies as a force multiplier for those SSNs uh, that could be out there uh, uh, doing the large work. Brian, do you, th do you, do you, th are you, you think there's anything there? Is the emphasis on how many ships the Chinese build the right emphasis? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I think about the submarine force uh, maybe a little differently than Tom does. Um, um, when I think about the conduct of actual combat operations, I want as many submarines as this nation can possibly afford because I believe them to be the most magnificent killing machines um, that the Navy builds. Um, and if uh, the national security strategy of 2018 and the national defense strategy and the Biden supplemental defense strategy and the tri-service maritime strategy and the NAV plan 2.0 all didn't add competition to the mix and emphasized competition and conventional deterrence within competition, um, I would be happy 
at a strategic level um, to, to buy two or three times as many submarines and a considerably fewer surface ships and aircraft carriers and everything else and just and just bet it all on conflict. Um, but that is not the strategic direction that we have been given. That is not the CNO's orders from his political uh, masters. He has been ordered to put a team on the field that can deter that conventional war from starting. Um, and I think that uh, there is an insufficient emphasis being placed programmatically on that portion of this. I, I don't think my friends in the attack submarine world are particularly good conventional deterrents if they are doing their job as we have understood their job to be for a long time, which is remain undetected. Um, I, I understand that sophisticated opponents will understand there are SSNs out there and be scared by them, but at the level of the psychology of conventional deterrence, um, you gotta know it's there. You gotta know it's there every day. It's gotta be in your face. It's gotta be powerful. It's gotta be networked. It has to be numerous. It's the cop on the beat rather than the camera that might be on the streetlight. Um, and so uh, again, getting back to this bit, if we don't build two SSNs a year, we're making a mistake. I'd like us to build three. Tom's uh, suggest, you know, this the crowd that's out there that wants us to build diesel submarines, we are building diesel submarines. They're on, they're just not, we're just not putting any people in them. And we should build a lot of those and we should learn more about them and operate them and, and they can be a big part of the undersea warfare problem. In the couple minutes we have left, I wanna shift just briefly and talk about um, the Secretary of the Navy um, that Biden administration nominated Carlos del Toro, Brian. Uh, he was the commanding officer of, uh, of the ship uh, that you commanded, uh, I think immediately before he commissioned uh, that, that vessel. Um, I want to get your thoughts from both of you. What, what advice would you give to uh, Carlos del Toro um, as he testifies? And then um, if he is confirmed, what does he need to be thinking about and where should he be prioritizing uh, his time? And I'll start oh, with no. you, Brian. Carlos was the, num was the first CEO. I was the third CEO. I, okay. know, I know Carlos a little bit. Uh, I don't think I've laid eyes on him in uh, 10, 12 years. I am disappointed not in Carlos and not in the choice of Carlos, but in the, in the process that uh, brought this nomination forward, the length of time it took, um, the fact that the Army and the Air Force get people who have spent the last 20 years deeply engaged in policy and strategy and the Department of Defense um, and Carlos, uh, Carlos has built a good business, and Carlos is, has been very successful. But I haven't, I don't, I haven't seen Carlos write anything, or think about anything, or produce any work that leads me to believe that he has been thinking about sea power. And I think that Secretary of the Navy ought to be thinking about sea power. So, my advice to um, Carlos Del Toro is to come into that that set of hearings with a theory of sea power with a sense of what he wants to do as Secretary of the Navy to deliver on the promise of sea power as the enabling element of military power for essentially an island nation's international defense 
and a prosperity strategy. That's what I'd like to see Carlos do. Tom, your thoughts? I don't know, Mr. Del Toro. And honestly, I, before the nomination or the rumors of the nomination came up, I never heard of him. That may speak somewhat to what uh, Brian was saying about with respect to his presence or, or lack thereof in the discussion in, in, the, in, these, in these circles. I mean, I'm happy to see somebody who's a former um, naval officer uh, be, you know, uh, potentially. Uh, that certainly brings some perspective to the table. With respect to advice, I mean, obviously, if you want to get the job, you've got to say the right things uh, in public to get it. And, I, we, you know, and there's, of course, a, a, an ongoing conversation. And I put a thread out a while back about how all the entire last couple of decades as we've watched our naval primacy uh, come under greater threat, how it's been an unending parade of uh, SECNAVs and CNOs um, largely telling Congress that everything was going to be okay with their proposed budget. Uh, I, you know, I don't expect that to change, but I sure hope that behind closed doors, uh, he's willing, going to be willing to say hard things to people that need to hear it in terms of the reality uh, that the Navy is already and is certainly going to be facing uh, in terms of the challenges we have coming up, because I don't necessarily think that may have been happening. You know, Commander Salamander has a good uh, theory on this, and that's um, Carlos's uh, proximity to the levers of power within the Democratic Party is a good thing and will give him entree and, uh, and contacts that others have not had. Uh, if, that is, if that theory plays out, I, I'd be very pleased. Brian McGrath, Tom Shugart, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We could run this for hours and hours uh, to talk about, you know, what the Navy's doing, where it needs to go, but greatly appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks. My pleasure. Thanks. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. That means it's time for Squawk Box. This week, remember the Bonham Richard. July 12th marks the one-year anniversary of the fire aboard USS Bonham Richard. The big deck amphibious assault ship was nearing the end of a major two-year quarter-billion-dollar overhaul, an upgrade that was to allow her to operate the F-35B Joint Strike Fighter. The fire broke out while the ship was pierside in the U.S. Navy's second-largest naval base, said San Diego. The blaze was declared out on July 16th, more than four days after it began. The damage was extensive and affected 11 of the ship's 14 decks. Over the course of the fire, hundreds of sailors and firefighters were involved in fighting the conflagration, which was fully visible to thousands of people in the San Diego area. But at every turn, when one might have expected the fire to come under control, it did not. While a series of decisions were made on how to fight the fire, none of them were successful, at least until after four days and the ship was a near wreck. The disaster was unprecedented. Not since the 1941 Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor had a major warship been lost in the heart of a large American naval base. The closest such event was in 2012, when a fire later determined to have been started by an arsonist caused severe damage to the submarine Miami while in dock at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. That fire, which was put out after nine hours, caused so much damage the Navy reckoned the cost of repair wasn't worth it, and the Miami was decommissioned. It didn't take the Navy long after that Miami fire to determine a number of fixes were needed to improve firewatch and firefighting procedures for ships and overhaul. And those directives began to be issued only a few weeks, some cases days, after the Miami fire. The arsonist was eventually convicted and sent to prison. Yet it has been a year since the Bonham Richard burned, and no one has been held accountable, no cause revealed, no public report on the event ever been issued. 
the Navy cites multiple ongoing investigations, but it should not take a year to figure out what happened. There are two major issues. First, how did it start? Completely separate from that is another question. A fire started, and then what happened? But there's no accounting, no acceptance of responsibility, no indication that what happened on the once mighty Bonham Richard will not happen again. The burned out hulk of the ship now lies at an obscure Texas scrapyard, never again to go to sea. It is out of sight and in danger of falling out of mind. The time is long past for the Navy to have publicly provided answers to what caused the loss of the Bonham Richard. That a year has gone by with no official report looks and smells like a deliberate cover-up. Slogans like Remember the Maine, Remember Pearl Harbor, and Remember 9-11 remain famous for their call to remember those responsible for those disasters. To those well-worn phrases, I'll add, remember the Bonham Richard. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian for his support. Follow us on Twitter at Cavus Ships. As a reminder, the Cavus Ships podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and Spotify. If we're not on your favorite channel, be sure to shoot us a DM and we'll see what we can do. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, shoot us a note. Exciting opportunities for regular or trade show coverage are available. All right. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Thanks for, Thanks listening. for listening. And bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.